Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. We pray, our God, that we might be faithful to it. Pray that we might glorify you in the things that we say. And might our lives be given to follow you and all that you have for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'll tell you what, I never thought that I'd have to do so much if my priest got his elbow broke, man. God had other plans for that, and that's fine. It's, uh, we're just thankful that uh, he was able to have that taken care of. It's good to be with you this morning, and um, it's always good to open God's word. The preacher in the first service just went and went and went. And... Uh, Hope he doesn't do that in the second service. We'll see what we'll see what happens, though. Okay. So this morning I'm going to uh, tread where many people fear to tread. I'm going to go to the book of Revelation. I taught uh, I taught New Testament introduction over at the um, CFCC for two or three years, and. Um, it was a real privilege to be able to do that, of course, because of the position of the book of Revelation, it's at the end. And so you know that all of the students there want to know what's happening in the book of Revelation. I promised them that I would tell them everything that they needed to know about the book of Revelation when, when we got there. Well, I did. There was about 30 minutes left in the last class. And I got to the book of Revelation, and I told them everything that they needed to know. What you need to know about the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. You know, it's interesting that we have this particular book in, in, in Easter season. But the interesting thing is that actually there are six Sundays that have readings from the book of Revelation. Six Sundays. So if we would look at them now until right before Pentecost, we would be talking about what takes place in the book of Revelation. Okay? But one of the things that you may be disappointed in today is that I'm not here to give you a view of the book from the perspective of what the coming of Christ looks like. So my rector is now saying, <laughs> coming from a school that, dispensational in its theology looks like or or for that matter when the coming of Christ is going to take place but unfortunately the church of Jesus Christ gets wrapped up in the when and the what of the coming of Christ instead of the who of the coming of Christ and so when we look at the book we want to look and see we want to see what it has to say to us today about that. I was reading in one commentary, or I was reading one place, and their question was, is the book of Revelation a letter, or is it uh, an ap uh, apocalyptic book? And their answer was a resounding yes. Yes, it is. It is actually both. You know what a letter is. It's simply something that somebody writes to others to give them information. When we start to talk about apocalypsis, however, and by the way, the word is 
the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You and I today use the word apocalyptic as though it's all we had to look for was a, a, a cataclysmic end to things, a, a nuclear war that's going to end everything that there is to end. But the word apocalypsis actually has a different meaning than that. We, we get those things because people have read the book of Revelation, and they're looking at the what instead of the who. See? But when we look at an apocalypsis, we're looking at a disclosure of truth or instruction concerning things unknown, used of events by which things or state a person hereto withdrawn from view are made visible. In other words, things that we didn't know are now made available to us. That's all that it means. It means that God made available to us truth upon which you and I can live. The book of Revelation is to open up the truth of God to people. And that's what we need to be doing. Knowing those are the important things, I have to tell you that I cannot give you everything that you probably want to know about this book. So today I'd like you to see what the truth is concerning the one who gives us the letter or the apocalypsis and how that can impact everyday life. The first thing that I want to look at with you is the context in which this letter or this apocalypsis uh, was written. We do a little bit of background. Oftentimes when we do the readings, we will often say, the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. In my Bible, it has the revelation to John, and I actually appreciate that, to be real truthful with you. A lot of times what you will get in your Bible is the revelation of John the Apostle concerning Jesus Christ. Well, the truth is that John is the one who receives this and simply passes it on to the people uh, in uh, Asia Minor. While we often talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ according to St. John, we would really be better to say, this is the epistle of God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit to the churches at Asia Minor. We can see this in verses 9 through 11. If you have your pamphlet with you, you can take a look at it there. It says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Art, Sardis, and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, you might not be able to see that maybe a little bit closer. If you look down on the left-hand side uh, where that red line begins there, that's the Isle of Patmos. That is the area from which John is writing. And he's going to write to these churches uh, that are listed in Asia Minor there. He's going to write to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And the interesting thing is that this is what we would call a circular letter, 
a letter that's not written to just one church. It's written to seven different churches there in Asia Minor. Okay? And what would happen is that John would send this out, and the first church that it went to, of course, would be Ephesus because that's the closest church. And then it would follow basically clockwise to all of the other churches that are there. So that's what we have happening in this particular letter uh, that's here. The question that we might want to ask ourselves is, why in the world is John in Patmos? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? He tells us in that passage that I just read for you. He says that uh, uh, I was on the island of, called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was on the island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What is he saying to us? I was on this island because I taught what the scriptures had to say. And what scriptures did he have? What scriptures did he have? The Old Testament. He was preaching the Old Testament. And you know what? The Old Testament preaches the same thing that the New Testament, that there's a Messiah that's coming because man down back in the Garden of Eden sinned. That's what it's teaching. And that's what John was saying. John was saying, hey, I'm preaching, the, I'm preaching those books, those Hebrew scriptures about the Messiah. Oh, oh and by the way, that Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ. And so I'm telling people about this. And you know what the, you know what the authorities are saying? Keep your mouth shut. Don't talk about that. Don't talk about the scriptures and don't talk about this Jesus because he's a pain to us. Which is kind of interesting. Um, no, I don't have time. Sorry. Come sometime and we'll teach the book of Revelation. So what we basically have happening here is that John is on this island because he's being persecuted. The time element in which the, the, the book of Revelation was written was probably sometime in the early 90s AD. Okay? Now, um, when we look at it, if Jesus, uh, or if John is about the same age as Jesus, okay, and this is being written in the 90s, that makes John about 90. That's right. 90, maybe even a little, you know, pretty close. So he's an older man, and he has been sent to this secluded island, and he is on it because he wants to tell people about Jesus. He's being persecuted. The Roman emperor at that particular time is Domitian. Domitian, uh, we, we, most of us know about Nero and what he did. Oftentimes we don't know a lot about Domitian. Uh, my friend Caleb over here reminded me of Diocletian a little bit later on, about uh, 150 years later that he, that he, that he comes along. And, uh, uh, and there, there are persecutions that take place. And one of the things that I was reading is that Domitian doesn't seem to kill as many people as some of the other guys do. But one of the things that Domitian does is that he puts on his coins that he is Lord and God. 
Lord and God. By the way, by the way, this is free. I won't charge you a cent for this. On April the 22nd in 1864, something happened in the United States. Do you know what it was? Oh. I'm getting as far away from that one as I possibly can. <laughs> You're supposed to say, Pam, Donald. <laughs> so in 1864, something happened. The first coins in the United States were imprinted with the words, in God we trust, in God we trust, which is kind of an interesting thing to do. It's 1864. What was happening in 1864? Civil War. Things were not going well, and yet the government said, there's a God that we need to trust in, right? When things don't go well, and in all honesty, we could quit right now because that's what this is going to say to you. When things don't go well, we've got a God in whom we can trust. So Domitian has... Uh, or his, uh, his people have John sent over to pastors. Now, as we look at this letter, I want you to notice who wrote it. There are three personalities that we find in this first chapter. In verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So basically this, this testimony comes from three personalities. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God. Okay? So it also goes on here and tells us a little bit about it. What do we learn about God the Father? Well, on down here in verse 8 it says that, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Gives us a little bit of a view of the God who is writing this letter that are telling the churches that there's going to be some difficult times coming. Right? So he introduces himself as the one who lives now but had lived from the very beginning and will continue to live to the very end. He will be the Alpha, the beginning of all things. He will be the Omega, the end of all things. He's the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. He's the end, Revelation chapter 22. And he is the one to whom we can look. And then he uses the word Almighty. Almighty. He is not only present in the beginning, in the present time, and the end, he is the God who has the power to do anything he wants to do. He is the Almighty. When we look in the Old Testament, we often read about Yahweh, El Shaddai, the one who is almighty, the God who is, who is capable of delivering people in times of difficulty. And this is who we have introduced in Revelation 
There are things that are going to happen in these chapters. The church is going to say, how can I stand this? And the answer is, you have God Almighty, who was, who is, and who will ever be, has written you this letter. The second thing that we see is that we have Jesus Christ as writing this. Jesus, the faithful witness in verse 5, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You see verse 5? Easter Sunday, my friends, the firstborn of the dead, the first one to come out, the first one to have life, the one who gives life. That's what we're talking about. That's who is giving this to us. In verse 5, it says that he freed us from sin with his blood. We are no longer slaves to do things that would move us away from God. We are no longer held in captivity by our sinful nature to only do those things that please us. We now, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, have been given freedom, no longer slaves, but sons of God, the family of God, free to be his. He's made us a kingdom. After all, didn't Jesus say, the kingdom's here, the kingdom's here. You know, oftentimes we think that this kingdom is going to come sometime in the sweet by and by. What we learn is that when we come to know Jesus Christ as our personal savior, we are part of his kingdom. We are his, and we are to live. So when we say the prayer, thy kingdom come, let it come right now in me, because I'm part of that kingdom. I'm under your command, under your control, to be what you want me to be. And then he says that, he is, that we are a priest. You know, before the before Jesus Christ came, we had, to have, we had to have priests, the high priests. We would have to have the priests who would bring in uh, uh, incense to throw on the altar or, or, or to, 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 to slay an animal and put it on the altar. We would have the high priest who would have to go into the holy of holy place. But as we were reminded on Good Friday, God split that veil in the Holy of Holies right down the middle. He opened it wide so that no longer did we have to be afraid of going into the Holy of Holies, but through Jesus Christ, we could be in the very presence of God. We could serve him. We could pray directly to him. He is ours. We can let him know what our needs are. Well, what about his nature? And, and I, I wish I could spend more time. Uh, down in verse 13, it says that, that Jesus has a robe and a sash. He has hair as white as wool. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He has feet of bronze. His voice is like a rushing waters. Uh, his sword, he has a sword in his right hand. He held uh, the seven stars, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I do want to spend a little time on that. And his face shining like the sun. We have all of these things, and basically what it tells us about Jesus is nothing other than this, that he has authority over all things. 
not only does he have authority all over all things, he has the stability and the security to do whatever needs to be done for his people. He has a sword in his right hand with the, with the ability to judge nations. His eyes go out and they are able to see into the very hearts of every human being. That's that fire that comes. And then he says that he held the hand, that he holds the, holds the stars, the seven stars. If we would go later down in the chapter, you know what we would find out about those seven stars? The seven angels to the churches, the churches, the spirits, and the churches. And in it, in essence, he's saying, I hold the very church of Ephesus and Thyatira and Laodicea and Philadelphia and Sardis in my hand. You know what he would say to us today? I hold the very church of Jesus Christ at Christ the King Anglican Church in Ocala, Florida, in my hand. You know, it's the same promise that was given to the churches in, in Asia Minor. He holds us in his hand. And he has the authority as our king to tell us what we ought and ought not do. He's the one who can give stability. He's the one who can watch over us when times become difficult. And my friends, what he charges and what he says is that times are going to become difficult. But the reason why he gives us chapter 1 is to remind us that he is the God who is, who was, and who will be. The Alpha, the Omega, the Almighty. And we can depend on no matter what happens, no matter what comes. I plead to God for the people, for the church in Ukraine. But you know, God knows what's happening in Ukraine. And one of the things that you'll hear over and over again are so many in the Ukrainian church talking about how God is with them and watching over them, no matter what they see, no matter what's happening, they can give them strength. His face shining like the sun, it's the very picture of the glory of God. You remember, Moses would come down off of the mountaintop and he'd have to cover his face. The interesting thing is, the reason why he covered his face is not because it was so shiny, because when he moved away from God, the shining stopped. When he was in the presence of God, the very presence of God, the shining was there. So there's a little bit of both of those things there. God shines through Jesus Christ in our lives. And then we noticed here that there is this sevenfold spirit uh, that he talks about. Um, when he says, uh, grace to you and peace, uh, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I really believe with all of my heart that these are the actions, the actions of the Holy Spirit that he's enumerating there, that God is present. I like what Zechariah chapter 4 says. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, 
with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it and with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by one, by it, one on the right, a bowl on the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You know, we can have all kind of plans on what we're going to do and how we're going to save the world and do all of the things. But the thing that we need to understand is in times of difficulties, in times of trouble, in times of tribulation, the sevenfold spirit says, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that these things are going to happen. So then, my question is, then what should my response be? If I know that I have a God who is now, before, coming, Alpha, Omega, gave me new life through his blood, I'm a kingdom, I'm a priest, I have all of these things, I've got a Christ who has authority to do all of these things, the Spirit of God says, you can't do it on your own, but I've got you. I'm with you. Then what is my reply? Well, I love verse 17. See how John, what happens with John? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of the death and the Hades. Write therefore these things. What happens, is ex what happens to John is exactly the same thing that happened to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. When he saw the glory of the Lord, what did he say? Woe is me. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. I've seen the glory of the Lord. And what did God say to Isaiah? Here, I've cleansed you. Now I want you to go out, and I want you to be my spokesperson. What does he say to John? John falls down, and, and, and he... I think John is too afraid to move. John is too afraid to move. And God puts, Jesus Christ puts his hand on him and says, John, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm here for you. I'm the one that saved you. I'm the one that has the keys to the kingdom of hell and the kingdom of heaven. I'm the one that has the I'm the one that gives life. I'm the one that can judge it. John, I just want you to tell the message. I just want you to tell the message. John saw God in his glory and in his might and in his mercy and in his judgment. Sometimes we want to talk about the love of God and the love of God and the love of God. We need to talk a little bit about the fear we ought to have of God. You know, the old Puritans used to preach sermons, hands in the sa sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is interesting. It's probably the only sermon that anybody knows of John Wesley. And yet, most of his sermons were on God's mercy, grace, and love. But the only one we remember is the one where he talks about your hand over the pit of hell like a spider over the fire. And by the way, it was preached at night with candles that were kind of flickering. We need to get some of those things, uh, <laughs> sermons, you know? You know what I mean? 
But you know what? When we recognize who we are before God, then we can bow before him and say, you are my maker. You are my, you are my savior. You are my keeper. No matter what comes into my life, no matter what difficulties I have, I can count on you. I can count on you. I love uh, the olive tree Bible says this. As the final chapter in the divine story of salvation, God pulls back the curtain to reveal his plans for human history. I want you you to hear this. Okay? So I will speak slowly. Thank you, honey. Plans that center around Jesus Christ. Revelation presents in colorful language and powerful imagery the final chapter in God's story where he defeats the powers of evil, reverses the curse of sin, restores his creation, and lives among his people forever. While the details of this awesome and mysterious book are often debated, the main idea is not. God intends the vision of revelation to transform his people so that they will live faithfully in a fallen world until Jesus returns. Read it in the New Testament. Every time it talks about the coming of Jesus Christ, and I don't care where it is, The idea is live like Jesus Christ is coming today. Live like he's coming today. So these are the important things. The other night in in vestry, one of our members had a a devotion, probably one of the finest devotions that I've heard in in vestry. He was talking about having, um, having some things on his heart, on his mind, and difficulties with some third things. And he says, you know, I had all of those things. And then he said, I remembered that there's a passage. He actually had two passages. And I just want to share one with you. It's Romans 8, 28. And the other is Isaiah 55, 9. So if you want to look up Isaiah 55, 9 sometime later, you can do that. And, and Romans 8, 28. You all know Romans 8, 28. Love it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that a great passage? So all we have to do is remember that all the good times that we have, he's there. Except for one thing. Read down a little bit further. Read down a little bit further. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand. Now, listen. Listen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more. 
conquers through him. And friends, not just in the book of Revelation, in the book of Romans, all things in our lives come in. We always have a God who is always there. His son loved us so much that he died for us to make us part of his kingdom so that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, whether it's horses in, or whether it's vials or persecution or whatever it is, the love of Jesus Christ is always available to us as his final home. The one who is, who was, who will 